is a bloody disgusting podcast network. horror queers we're talking chicks with pics we're talking claustrophobia to the max and we're talking a perfect fucking horror film and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking birthday cake birthday cake (laughs) birthday cake that's the song right super close uh slightly different connotations given the nature of the song versus this movie but i like it i you too and we are talking neil marshall's the descent everyone and in case you couldn't tell both joe and i adore this film Yes, we are talking about it also on its 15th anniversary, and also to kick off the beginning of our vacation-themed month. Yeah, yeah it is, and it is definitely a vacation that goes awry. Um, Unfortunately, if the words horror and vacation are used in the same sentence, they're never really going to end well. I was going to say, I'm trying to think of a horror film that includes a vacation that ends well, and I mean, I guess you wouldn't have a film if that was the case, but... Typically, people should just not go on vacation in horror films. No, never. So, you know, but you know what? That's good for COVID. Y'all don't go on vacation. Yeah. Wear your fucking mask and stay at home with your staycation. (laughs) (laughs) But why? Obviously, yes. 15th anniversary. We've got vacation month. But I don't know. There isn't. Well, okay. There isn't explicit queer content in this, but I definitely think there's queer coding in this film. Yeah, and I think that's a bit of a source of debate among people. So you could suggest that there's a hint of romanticism between Holly, the protege, in quotation marks, of Juno. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's also, there's also just something inherently queer about a group of badass women who go on annual adventures and do like daredevil type shit. I agree. And you know, hey, this is what's funny. I caught myself being... Um, Oh, I, I I guess stereotypical. I don't know. But um, Holly is coded as a lesbian just because of her looks, I would say. You know, she got the short little boy haircut. But then she made the line in the beginning of the movie where she's like, oh, I'm a sports folk like Juno. And when I'm older, I want to have lots of babies. And I call mm-hmm. myself being like, oh, well, she can't be a lesbian because she wants to have babies. And then uh, I was like, wait. <laughs> in this day and age. I mean, it's it's 2005 when the, I'm sorry. If you were in the UK, it's 2005 when this came out. If you're in the US, it's 2006 when this came out. Right. So we are celebrating the UK release. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We we are celebrating the UK release. But um, yeah. I was kind of like, oh wait, like why again? As a, even a gay man, like why why did I instinctively think, oh, because she wants to have babies, and she think and she thought it was so easy to have babies that why would I just assume that she was straight then that she couldn't possibly be gay because of that statement? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think we're constantly on the lookout for not just queer content, but hopefully also to check our own biases. Because I remember the first time I saw this film, I definitely got queer coding from the way that Holly presents. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she has lines where she talks about, she doesn't even explicitly say that she has a boyfriend because there's this, you know, the girl chat when they arrive at the cottage and everybody's getting to know each other over drinks. And there's the implication that Holly has had a boyfriend, but she doesn't really get herself tied down. Mm-hmm. But 
it's not explicit. It's something that we're projecting because of the nature of the conversation. Which is interesting, though, because this film spends so much time defining these characters. And I've talked to a few people online about this recently because... You know, to me, this is a five-star horror film. Like, this is one, it's Absolutely. in my top ten horror films of all time. I think it's fucking masterful. Um, I don't think direct, writer-director Neil Marshall has really matched it ever. No. Absolutely not. I know we've discussed this briefly. I'm in the minority that I don't love his debut film, Dog Soldiers, but I'm definitely due for a rewatch. But I do appreciate that he take because Dog Soldiers is a mostly male cast with one female, and correct me if I'm wrong, and spoilers, everybody, um, the female turns out to be the villain of the piece? She's one of the villains, yes. Okay. Um, so I like that he was like, oh, I want to try something different, and he makes an all-female cast in this mm-hmm. movie, which is phenomenal to me i i mean and if you read the trivia you'll see that he initially turned this down because he didn't want to make another horror film with like a small cast who gets you know into in the woods <laughs> uh and then i think what attracted him was actually the idea of oh well what if you do it all female because he he felt like that wasn't something that he had really seen. Yeah, and because I was re- I was watching an interview. Um, by the way, y'all, the Blu-ray of this film is stacked. Um, there's like <laughs> not only are there two different commentaries, one including the cast, but there's also this picture-in-picture option where you can watch the movie like with behind-the-scenes stuff popping up as you're watching it. Oh, uh, that's fun. There's a 40-minute documentary on the making of the film. Like the outtakes are fucking hilarious. Um, <laughs> but there's one of the reasons Natalie Mendoza was excited for the role is because the character of Juno wasn't written as Asian. And she was like, oh, cool. I can just come into a character and just be a character and not be the Asian girl. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Because that's another take on diversity that we queers tend to bristle against, right? Mm-hmm. Like this idea that, uh, and we'll explore this a little bit later in the month with a film that we're not announcing just yet. Mm-hmm. But uh it's one of the things that you'll it's one of the things that we frequently seem to rub up against which is this idea that oh well you can't just have a queer character and like their defining element is their queerity right but at the same time we also don't want queer characters who are asexual and don't seem to have any kind of connection to a sex life or a romantic life or even like wants and desires like it's tricky when you talk about representation because we're still at a stage basically except for white men in horror films where we're constantly saying oh that's that one black character oh there's that one queer final girl like Mm -hmm. there's so few of them that we latch on but we also force everything that we need from these representations onto a single character and it's just not fair and when i was doing my research for this because i don't know if i mean maybe you did see but like all the actresses come from different nationalities and Mm -hmm. so much of what we attribute to being different is based on looks yes and what, I mean, Nora Jane Noon, who plays Holly, is Irish. Saski Mulder, who plays Rebecca, is Dutch. Mayana Burring, who is Sam, is Swedish. Alex Reed, who's Beth, is English. Natalie Mendoza is Australian. And Shauna McDonald, who is Sarah, is Scottish. And that's also something where it's like, oh, I, I like that they, they... I think, honestly, they all use their regular accents except for... Juno. Juno, yeah. Because she, she's supposed to be American, I think, in the film. <laughs> yeah, she is supposed to be American. <laughs> But so I, I I was kind of watching myself at that too. Like, okay, yes, like we see that Juno is the Asian one. So she's quote unquote different. But in reality, all of these women are different from each other because they all come from different countries. 
Yeah, I'd almost love a backstory that's kind of like point break minus the crime, where it's like, how did these wonderful women come together and meet each other and start having exciting adventures on an annual basis? I know. I like to imagine there's like some kind of cave diving club from 2005 that they, they just met at, or maybe it was like some kind of like MySpace group. <laughs> yeah, and they were like, Ugh, this is for pussies. We're like way more <laughs> hardcore than this. We should totally form a club. When did you first see this movie, Joe? So I definitely saw this whenever it came out in theaters in Canada. I mm -hmm. think it was around the same time as you Americans got it. But the fun fact is that we got the original UK ending. So Ugh. they did not try to soften it for us. So we got the Debbie Downer, ultra dark, ultra nihilistic and defeatist ending. And honestly, if, the, if I had seen the film with the American ending, I don't think this would be a five star film for me. Have you seen the American ending? Oh, I guess you know, because it just cuts off. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw it, like, as a YouTube extra. So, I because I had seen it described online, but I didn't know exactly where it ended. And then mm -hmm. I realized, oh, okay, yeah, they basically just chop off the actual end of the film. It's not like they've shot it differently. And you know what's funny to me is, um, and I'll talk about my experience in a minute, but the American ending of this film, which is, yeah, just Sarah in the car and Juno's there. A, for some reason, I, I thought that, in that scene, Juno, like, opened her mouth, and that's, like, when it came across. I wonder, because this comes out in the midst of, kind of, all the J-horror remakes, mm -hmm. if... Because Lionsgate did the American distribution for this, and they were like, oh, like, obviously this ending tests better because it's more positive. Like, she's physically... <laughs> Your main character does not die. <laughs> yeah, but I also wonder if, like, it's, oh, J-horror is so hot right now, and we have this Asian woman as a ghost in the car. <laughs> oh, ew. I hadn't even thought of that, and that's nasty. I know, right? It sucks. Um, yeah, the American ending sucks, and it's a real shame that the sequel, which I did watch before watching this movie last night, well, um, your uses fault. <laughs> that ending. Well, okay, <laughs> I had seen the sequel back when it came out because it came to, it did straight to DVD in the States, um, but it came out when I was at Blockbuster, working at Blockbuster, so I watched it. I remember thinking it was fine back then, and I had given it like a three out of five. I did not feel the same way watching it last <laughs> night. Um, I was uh, quite upset watching this film last night. But I will say, if you are ever going to, like, if you're interested in ever watching the sequel, it is worth it. Because, spoiler alert, Natalie Mendoza does return in the last 15 minutes of the film. Oh, Okay, so the idea is that she survives everything that happens in this film, or is she a ghost? No, she survives. Um, it picks up two days after the beginning of this film, and I mean, again, I'm not a spoiler for y'all, but basically, it ends with them reconnecting, and, you know, Juno's like, oh, fuck, like, you, you left me here, and then it kind of ends with them coming together, because Juno, they, 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 she's found an exit from the caves, and, but there's, it's during, it's in a feeding ground room. And so they all, them two, and then the one new character who's survived in the in the sequel, um, fight them off. Juno does get killed, and she dies in Sarah's arms, and they kind of forgive each other. And then Sarah basically sacrifices herself to let the new final girl escape the cave. <laughs> okay. I know. So if, 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 if you want more resolution from your Juno-Sarah story, like, it's there. I don't need it, though. But it, it is nice to see them, like, back and, like, interact again, but it's not a good movie it's a terrible movie <laughs> okay um i heard about this film so in 2005 it, i'd never heard of it um but if you might recall there was a movie that came out in the states called the cave in 2005 with lena Headey. oh i'm familiar 
So I went to go see that movie in theaters with my dad, and I think that was probably around August of 05, so it would have been about a month after The Descent hit UK cinemas. And I remember seeing it, and I was seeing all these bad reviews, and at the time I was a person who would go on the IMDb message boards and like look at everyone's thoughts on them. And when I was doing that, though, I saw someone saying, it was someone from the UK, I guess, that was like, oh, if you, you, the cave is like the American ripoff of The Descent, even though they were filmed at the same time. (laughs) You need to watch this movie called The Descent, and it's, you know, it's done, it's very similar in concept, but it's, you know, real dark, it's like actual footage, like, you you don't know what's going on, blah, 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 and it's legitimately terrifying. And of course... I was like, I mean, I was 16 at the time, and I was just like, oh my god, I have to see this fucking movie. And then I see it doesn't have a release date in the States, because I I don't think Lionsgate had acquired it yet. Um, I know. But then when it finally did come out over a year later, which is real fucked up, uh, I was working at a movie theater, and you've you've worked at a movie theater, right, Joe? You've told me that? I've worked at both a movie theater and a video rental company, yeah. Oh my god, we share so many things in common. We should start a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know you. Um, But no, uh, so then you know that when I'm, when, like... The Thursday before the movies come out, or I guess the Wednesday if it's a Thursday screening, you know, you get to watch the movies in advance because you have to make sure the print is clean and it's working. I 100% watched this movie before it came out because I was like, oh, I have to watch this movie that I heard about over a year ago on an IMDb message board. Right. And you probably had to watch it really late at night because you had a regular job to do. Yes. Yeah. You always had to watch it. They would always start the movies around 11 p.m. Um, so I did that and I watched it. I fucking... And I actually, because it came out the same week as some other movie, and I I told all my coworkers I was like y'all who like didn't know anything about it really I was like y'all have to come watch this movie instead. But the, the funny thing was like the productionist was like no y'all we have to have at least one person in every theater for every new movie coming out this weekend because I have to make sure that all the prints are fine. And I was like corralling everyone to go see The Descent with me. <laughs> <laughs> You're like fuck that other Hollywood film that shit's garbage. Come watch this UK import. <laughs> That's so funny, though, because I I have like these fond memories of that same kind of era where the internet was now a popular thing, but it also meant that you were getting access to all of these, not access, you were getting informed of all of these international titles that so often were only available on bootleg or like terrible rips or like torrents that were going to take you 25 years to download off of LimeWire or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> like I remember I did that with Battle Royale where I ordered it off of eBay Ooh. and just had to like fingers crossed that it would play in my fucking North American regional player. <laughs> well, and I just looked it up too because you know what movie everyone else wanted to go see because it was opening the same day that weekend? Oh god. 2006. Um, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. It's so funny because I was thinking, oh, it was probably some Adam Sandler movie. So, really. <laughs> no, but I saw it and I fucking loved it. And of course, like the next, during the weekend when I was off work, I um, I took my dad to go see it. So I saw this twice in the theaters opening weekend. And it is, of course, amazing. But it was one of those two where like people I saw it with, they're expecting a monster movie. And this is a 100 minute film in which the monsters don't appear until the 58 minute mark. See, it's super funny. I've had the opposite experience where people go into this and they think that it's only a cave-in movie. Mm. And then they get real, real surprised. That No, that's <laughs> that's the best way to watch it, actually. Because I was, like, talking to people online today because like, I, I talked to some people who, like, really just didn't like the movie. And I was always like, oh, my God, like, how is that even possible? Who are so, these people? Unfriend them immediately. <laughs> but I think if you go in expecting a monster movie and you're like where are the monsters whereas if you go in expecting a cave diving movie and then monsters appear it's a probably a better experience for the layman 
And I don't mean to insult anyone by saying that, but that's just kind of my opinion on the matter. Hmm. Like, this is a movie that is a... It's a movie that focuses on characters that happens to have monsters, whereas the sequel is a monster movie that happens to have characters. (laughs) (laughs) And characters might be a stretch. Yeah, they're real dumb. It's real bad. Um, You can go look at my Letterboxd review uh, for my thoughts on The Descent Part 2. And if you want to go to my personal Instagram account, you can see a picture in which I compare the, um, the pool, like, watery scene in the first movie to the same scene, like the same setting in the second movie, and this one is lit very well, and it's dark, and it's red, and then the one in the second movie is lit like a daytime, like, sitcom. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not great, and also, I don't appreciate you whoring your social medias out on the show. I'm just saying, you can follow my <laughs> Instagram, I need more followers. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll post it on the Horror Quiz accounts, because I still have the picture taken. So, hey, when Neil Marshall's film Dog Soldiers, uh, it was it was a pretty, it was a moderate success, but I feel like at the time, like, this is back in 02, it was one of those films, A, it was in the early days of Bloody Disgusting, and it was also, like, always talked about as, like, oh, this is, like, a movie you have to see, no one knows about it, it's a, one of the best werewolf movies ever made. It was really good for Marshall, so yeah, he received a lot of requests to direct other horror films, because people were like, hey, like, Dog Soldiers is really good, do this. As you said, he was kind of hesitant, decided to do it, and... They set the film in North America, but then they shot it entirely in the UK. Now, did you watch any of the the behind-the-scenes stuff in this? I think I watched whatever version of that 40-minute documentary is available on the regular edition DVD. It it might be the same thing, honestly. but um, I think it probably is. So they made 21 different cave sets on Pinewood Studios, and then they used... um, a quote unquote unique system of polyurethane sprayed rock that was um that they developed for it. And they basically used the same sets over and over and over. And mm-hmm. you know, we have both watched Blackwater Abyss recently, which is set in an underwater cave, and both of us agree that, that the geography of that film is kind of boring. You know, the caves are just kind of there. Yeah. They are unexceptional, they're not well lit, it's hard to get a sense of just how big the room is, and visually it's really unexciting. And sometimes that's part of the intention, right? Like, particularly in the first Blackwater, where you're just there looking at the trees 90% of the time, but in that case it works, whereas in an underground cave system, you want it to have a bit more personality because, like, you're not even getting natural light. Right. Whereas in this film, though, I mean, like, it's so funny because it's just a bunch of rocks, but for some reason i feel like i could draw a map to this cave system (laughs) oh yeah because they spent a lot of time thinking about the geography as well as the sequences so that it feels like it has a progression and you can see the cave system evolving to introduce like it starts off dusty and then it gets wet and it's got more fuck i'm gonna try to say it stalactites it's stalactite and stalagmite oh fuck Whatever. One of them goes up and one of them is from the... One of them is on the ground and one of them is on the ceiling. I don't remember which one is which. Well, aren't we useless? You've never been to a cave? Uh, it's not exceedingly popular here in Canada. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah, we have a lot of um, like caves in Texas where you can go in and there's like a souvenir shop and stuff. So you get like the, um, the uh, school education thing. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, we probably have some variation of that, but it's more likely to be a mine in Canada. Oh, yeah. Never been to a mine. Uh, I will confidently say that while I do enjoy rock climbing, like I've been to like rock gyms here in Texas, I don't want to do actual rock climbing because seeing movies like this, uh, Cliffhanger and Vertical Limit, have forever turned me off of those things. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I know a bunch of people who consider this film absolutely terrifying, and they're not talking about the creatures. They're talking about the claustrophobia, and they're talking about the climbing. Oh, when we get to the scene when right right before the cave-in when Sarah gets stuck? Yeah, I think for some people that's actually the scariest moment in this film. It 100% is. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, it looks really good. And also in, in this uh, little behind-the-scenes thing, there's a part where um, the actress that plays Beth, Alex Reed, walks up and she's asking the guy, because he's like dressing, he's like spraying the rock and getting it wet. And she's like, is that vagina real wet for you, man? Because as, <laughs> and it looks like a vaginal wall, or at least what I presume look would look like a vagina. Anyway, um, okay, so yeah, the movie gets made, it's great, blah, blah, blah. The marketing for this film, so... You have a you have a story about this poster, but um, well, there's one poster that I guess is just Sean and McDonald like screaming at the top, and it's in the, the pool scene, um, mm-hmm. or whatever. Well, actually, I call it a pool. In the second movie, it's their toilet. Oh, nice. Okay. There's literally a scene in which a crawler shits in the what they called the crawler crapper on the set of the set of the sequel. Wow, this sequel sounds super classy. It's yeah, it's real fucking stupid. <laughs> um, but no, the, I think the most common image of the film, which I actually wish they would have used for the home video art, is all the women in the shape of a skull. Yeah. So the poster, uh, according to IMDb trivia, is borrowed from a portrait photograph by Philip Halsman of Salvador Dali, entitled Salvador Dali in Voluptate Morse, and the photo was inspired by Dali's. Uh, skull painting which is female bodies and one of the imdb trivia pieces is that this is similar to the iconic poster for silence of the lambs which is uh, clary starling's mouth with the moth in it yeah and i thought that that was really interesting my story is not so much about the poster so much as about another connection between the silence of the lambs and this film which i literally never noticed until this rewatch which is that moment where juno when she wakes up first before she goes and like annoys everybody by waking them up really early mm-hmm. when she's running through the woods i 100 percent was like shit this is clary starling running through the quantum oh the my woods. god you're so right there's actually a lot of homage in this film. I mean, Neil Marshall himself even says at the end of the film, well, the American ending of the film. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No, no, the, go ahead. The UK ending of the film um, is meant to homage Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it's like, oh, well, I mean, yes, she's escaped, um, but she's also clearly gone insane. So either yes. version of the film actually works that way. Oh, yeah. And he credits, you know, the, the concept as being deliverance-like, because, of course, it's a vacation that has terrible insinuations. Also, the way that Sarah slowly goes insane over the course of the film, he credits as being a homage to The Shining, which I'm like, okay, well, that's a bit more for you than us. <laughs> okay, and we're looking at a budget of $7 million for this film. This is something I didn't know. So the film, this film opened the same weekend of the London bombings in July 2005. So a lot of the marketing involved Sean and McDonald's like screaming face, like a woman in fear, like in subways and stuff in London. And yeah, it, not great. It had to be pulled. And so Pathé, the distributor in the UK, credits the bombings with the poor box office, which, and that brings me to the box office. It made $31.1 million internationally. And twenty six million overseas. It opened in number the number five spot in the states, okay. um, with eight point nine million dollars. But like, again, behind Talladega Nights, behind a cartoon movie called Barnyard, <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, the second one, and then Miami Vice. Um, so 
I remember when it opened, I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to flop. But it ends up making $26 million. And, I mean, I think against a $7 million budget, I think that's fine. And bear in mind that this still isn't a great period for horror films, right? Like, we were firmly kind of coming into the torture porn era. And we're we're starting the remake fever with Texas Chainsaw Massacre a couple years before. But I don't know. I mean, like, it's a foreign film. Ugh, scary. And it's not kind of de rigueur of what's happening in horror at the time. So it kind of feels like an odd man out, Uh, an odd woman out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it was actually supposed to open in the UK later in 2005. But when they got wind of the cave being made, they fast tracked production to get it out before the cave was released. God, can you imagine thinking that you had to compete with the The cave? cave. Oh, God. (laughs) And bless Lena Headey. God, that woman shows up in some garbage movies. I have not seen The Cave since theaters, because I did see this in theaters with my father. Um, and that's why I wanted to take him to see The Descent, because I was like, oh, it's a much better movie. But Piper <laughs> Parabo, she gets the and Piper Parabo credit in that movie. Oh, bless her. And the creatures in that one, it's kind of the same concept where it's like, oh, it's people that were down there and they mutated or whatever, and then yeah, they fly. Boys, yeah. But- She's the first of the group to die, and there's a part where she's up against the wall, and I just because it's PG thirteen, and I remember the part where like they think they've killed a creature and it falls, and then it comes up flying, and that's the first time they've seen it flying, and you just hear Piper Parabo go, "They fly, they freaking fly," and then she gets like you know carried away and gets killed. Right, it's real bad. (laughs) Unfortunate. Does that have Cole Hauser in it from Pitchbuck? Yes, it does. Oh my god, I don't like him. He's so boring. Uh, super boring, kind of cute, like the hair, super boring. Yeah. He is in one of my only, like, the only Tyler Perry movies that I like called The Family That Prayed, but he's an asshole in that movie, too. God. Okay. Well, I have nothing to contribute to that conversation. That's fine. We'll cover it one day. It's a horror movie, anyway. No, we will not. All Tyler Perry movies. <laughs> what, you don't want to cover Boo a Medea Halloween? Veto. Veto power executed. <laughs> I am pulling the escape hatch now. Um, so yeah, we've got a worldwide gross of $57.1 million for The Descent. Critics love this movie when it came out. We're looking at 85% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.36 out of 10. Roger Ebert himself didn't review it. He had someone else doing it because I think at the time he was going through his mouth surgeries for his cancer. But they gave it a 4 out of 4 for his website. Um, we're looking at a letterbox score of 7.2 out of 10. I mean, I think it's safe to say this is, this is one of the most highly regarded modern horror films. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really have much else to say. I so I guess, I guess you can just kick off this plot, Joe. All right. So the film opens as a trio of women: Sarah, Shauna McDonald, Beth, Alex Reed, and Juno, Natalie Mendoza, go whitewater rafting. On the ride back to the hotel, Sarah's husband Paul Oliver Milburn. I'm literally naming him, even though he's about to die in four words i didn't put him in my notes because i was like i saw his name in the cast and i was like that's not important (laughs) absolutely not nope (laughs) and uh you you are missing though one thing i love about this film is that while there is a lot of dialogue it's not clunky exposition mm -hmm. so if you're casually watching this film you won't catch like the look that juno gives paul Oh, yeah, the, like, thanks for taking off my helmet, let's fuck later look. Yeah. Yes. Like, again, if you haven't seen this film, yeah, Juno is fucking Sarah's husband. And we never know if it's how, if it's, like, been going on for a long time, if it's a one-time thing. We don't really know. But Mm -hmm. there is something you can see when he pulls her thing off that you, you, they give a look to each other. But then you, 
it's you're cued into it because Sarah and Beth notice it. Uh, does Sarah notice it? Beth definitely notices it. Beth definitely notices it. But the thing is, Sarah, like, the way the film is edited, so she's with her daughter, and then she hugs her, I think, and then you see her, like, raise her eyebrow and look, and that's when the film cuts to Paul pulling off Juno's helmet. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because the way the film plays out, it seems like Sarah doesn't know. Like, she's not really cued into it, but that Beth 100% knows and just doesn't ever tell her. I get that, and I think what, I, what I'm what i choosing to believe, because again, the, the film, it, yeah, it doesn't tell you. You have no. to infer these things. And yep. I, I think that your reading makes total sense. What I choose to believe is that she knows, but it's one of those things where it's like, she doesn't want to believe it, so she like right. pushes it out of her mind. Because Because we have this moment in the car where she's like, you seem distant. Yes. And I think that that's her trying to pry, but then, of course, go ahead. Yeah, but then, of course, uh, they get into a terrible car accident, as so many horror films do. I I love a horror film that opens with a bad car accident. And no music cues. The the way that this is shot is so cool. I Mm -hmm. love it. And you just get the... It's just the sound of the pipe going through the car, and then that spray of blood. This... Super good. The, the gore work in this film is phenomenal, mm-hmm. and so much of it is close-up shots. Like, like, like the split-second close-up shots of just blood spraying. Yep, and practical effects. There's no CGI blood in this movie. Ugh, God. Those, for a $7 million squib, budget. Squib, squibs. Blumhouse, take note. $7 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's $7 million, pounds, so it's actually $20 million. No, no, no. <laughs> it's $3.5 million pound budget. I just doubled it to $7 million. Oh, look at you with the math. I know. I mean, it's not obviously 100% accurate, but it, yeah, the budget was $3.5 million. Pounds. I see. Okay. Yeah, so this is not a good car accident for Sarah. She no. loses both her husband and her daughter, Jessie, who is played by Molly Kale. And it's worth saying that because Jessie does reappear in the film at various points. And most specifically right here, uh, Sarah has a hallucinatory dream where she imagines Jessie blowing out her birthday candles because, of course, it was also her birthday. <laughs> Because yeah. fuck, this movie likes to just pile the grief onto Sarah. <laughs> it's... I mean, I'm married, but I don't have a kid. I can't even imagine. Like, I love this is all pre-title card, and you have the shot when she's running. Like, she wakes up in the hospital. She's running in the hall, and the lights are going out. And like, it's it's such it's a orphan, yeah, yes, but obviously pre-orphan by five years, four years. But it's such a fantastic way to open this film because this should cue you into the kind of movie you're in. You know, people go in, oh, it's a monster movie. The monsters are absolutely second fiddle in this film. Yes, they are terrifying, but they are not the horror in this film. The horror is what is the the grief that Sarah is experiencing, and it's so sad to watch. Yeah, and really, this film doesn't work if you don't care about these women, and the film spends a lot of time to build these relationships. I... I want to say it feels like more than a lot of other horror films. I don't know if it's true. It might just be that it does a better job of establishing who these women are. Because, like, even as I think about it, um, I don't actually know that much about Becca or Sam, but they feel like real human beings. And I grieve when they die. I agree with you. And I wrote in my notes at one point, I was like, I'm really into Sarah and Becca's ordeal. Like, we're off, like, seeing Juno do her own thing and whatever. I like Sam, Sam and Becca. really cared about Sarah, uh, no. about Becca and Sam. And I, because Becca's like, you know, she's, she's the, 
the, the the safety one. She's the one that's kind of the leader. And mm-hmm. then Sam is kind of the innocent one, but she's also in med school or nursing school or whatever. And she's kind of like, you know, trying to like get be, step out of her sister's shadow and all this stuff. And I found that really, really endearing. And I loved them. But it's it's the 15 minutes that we get like in the cabin, like when they all meet. Like, yeah, it's not a bunch of stuff where you're like, oh, I do this. I do this. I do this. It's very like organically done. but it informs so much about these characters. And yes, I agree. I think the saddest death for me is Sam's death. Oh, it's horrifying too. Like it feels mean to yes. this like super nice character. <laughs> well, especially considering, uh, well, uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay. So after the title card, we get a one year later sign. So this is to help the film jump over the really immediate grieving, but also to help us understand the character relationship. Still, we come back with Beth and Sarah as they're driving into Chattooga Park in the Appalachian Mountains, and they're basically having a conversation about how Juno fucked off. So she came briefly to Scotland after Paul was killed, but then she left almost immediately. And Sarah is very apologetic on her behalf. Like, oh, you know, it's fine. At least she came. And Beth is not. Yeah. And that that kind of supports your theory that Sarah didn't know. I, I'm still in the mindset where it's like, well, she's kind of, Sarah's like grieving still. <laughs> like, I don't even think like, I mean, there's no timeline for grief, but no. Like, she's obviously still upset <laughs> over oh. the death of her family a year ago. <laughs> yeah, gosh, what a, what a shocker. What a weird thing to happen. <laughs> so uh, one of the th- other things that we should acknowledge, and I'll credit Stacy and Anthony from Gaylords of Darkness. I had never really thought about this until their episode on The Descent last year. Mm-hmm. I also think that Beth is like super queer, and she spends a lot of this movie trying to protect Sarah because she loves her. You know, and I did listen to that episode when it aired, but I had forgotten that conversation. And I, I do agree. I, I think that you are right in that. Or, I'm sorry. I think that they are right in that. It's just, it's it's played so subtly that you could easily say, oh, no, she's just being a really good friend. But it's like everything that Beth does is out of love for Sarah. Sarah is her fucking priority in this movie. And that's also why when Beth dies, it's the Okay, so you said, oh, Sam's death. Is yeah, I, I, no, Beth's death is the absolute best. I, I agree. I mean, no, I, I, I feel terrible for Sam because she's kind of alone. Beth's death is traumatic because Sarah has to kill her. Um, I mean, again, I don't think there's any death in this movie that's, like, good to watch. I mean, honestly, Holly, maybe, because I think Holly gets well, Holly's annoying. Holly's annoying, yeah. <laughs> by intention. <laughs> Absolutely. It's totally by design. Um, I, but yeah, I know. And, yeah, uh, I, I can see the queer reading of Beth. There's, there's a bit of coding there, but it's also in the eye acting, you know, like the, there's a lot of looks and you mm-hmm. can argue that it's, oh, it's her best friend, blah, blah, blah. She really cares about her, but I can I can see it. And we'll continue to discuss as we go along. Mm. So they arrive at this cabin or a series of cabins. Of course, they only had one because they were working with a three and a half million pound budget but juno and her protege holly are there as well as sisters becca and sam and then they spend the rest of the night drinking and catching up and one of the other fun things that i had also never caught before this watch is that as sarah comes in so she goes in alone so that beth and uh beth and juno can exchange (laughs) glances (laughs) at each other and 
as Sarah is walking up, she pauses, I think, to collect herself and be like, all right, you can do this. You can put on a happy face and pretend like you're still not sad about your dead husband and kid. And she hears Becca and Sam talking about cheating. Oh, I did not catch this. They're talking about cheating at cards because they're playing cards. But it's another verbal cue to say like hey have you thought about the fact that juno was cheating and sarah doesn't know okay no that yes i i yeah i have heard that so i actually show this movie whenever people ask me what's a good scary movie something that's really gonna scare me i mean again like you know you could be a good horror fan and say halloween or whatever and it's like okay but sure. i know realistically i'm not gonna show someone like halloween today and they're not really they're not really gonna be scared by it you know Mm-hmm. This is a movie where I can comfortably say, if you watch this movie, you will get scared. And one of the joys about it is that, as you know, lamented, there's a tendency to rely on jump scares a lot in contemporary horror films. And this one mm-hmm. does have those. But again, they're really expertly well done. And it's not just jump scares that get you. Like, there's so many different types of scares in this film. I agree. And I appreciate jump scares that don't use a music cue. And we're about to come up to one. Yeah. Okay. So after all of this drinking, everybody goes to bed and Sarah struggles to fall asleep. So she hears something and she gets up and she looks out at the window. And because you're thinking this is a horror film, there's creatures in here, you think she's going to see something outside. And instead, one of the rods from the car accident just comes through the window and impales her in the face. (laughs) I will tell you that the first time I saw this movie, I jumped out. This was the biggest scare of the movie for me. I mean, because I had seen the trailer. So I, I, when the night vision thing happens, I expected it. I knew it was coming. Right. This thing made me jump out of my seat. It is fucking shocking. And this is the kind of scare that we've seen a million times. This is literally the closing of the bathroom mirror and there's somebody behind you. This is turning around a a corner and somebody shocks you. Like, we have seen this a million times and this should not be as effective as it is. It's also kind of a twist of of one of my least favorite scares, which is, uh, oh, something happens, boom, jump scare. Oops, it's just a dream. They wake up. And for some reason, this works for me. Because I think it's just better done than we've seen in a lot of these other films i think this is it's a little weird to say but this is also one of the reasons why i'm so frustrated with neil marshall's career because i see what he's capable of and then i see what he's reduced himself to in subsequent films you should so it should be pointed out so he followed this movie up with doomsday which is a very it's a more of an action like kind of a mad maxi type film i escape from new york yeah yes um, i really enjoy that film it's not i don't even think it's very good per se but it's very entertaining yeah he hasn't done a lot since he he is mostly known in the 2010s for directing the season two episode nine episode of game of thrones the battle of blackwater episode Mm -hmm. um which he brought a lot of people from this film into that episode. I'm sorry, the um, the crew, not the actors. And a lot of people feel that that's one of the strongest early episodes of Game of Thrones. Oh, it is. But there is a film coming up in, uh, on his IMDb. For, I think it's for 2020, but it might be 2021, called The <laughs> Reckoning. And it is listed as a horror film. I don't know what it is. There's no plot listed. But his next film is a horror film. So we'll see if maybe he's coming back. Okay. Let's wait for that then. Okay, so the next day, Juno wakes everybody up at the crack of dawn. Your favorite time, Trace. Dude, no. (laughs) I hate this. Also, Becca seems to be hungover, and Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I don't... No, 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 no. That's not... 
No, I, I don't want a cave dive hungover. I was going to say, can you imagine going hard like a night of partying with the boys or the girls and then all of a sudden getting up at probably, what, 5 or 6 a.m. at the latest so that you can spend the day fucking rappelling into uncharted caves? No, thank you, sir. No. And it's freezing. Like, even like, and that's something the actresses said in the behind the scenes stuff was like, oh, they were like cold the entire time because I guess. Well, they Pine Woods just... doesn't have heat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you see their breath, and it's not stupid CGI cold breath. It's real breath. <laughs> oh, dear. Method. Uh, and then, of course, you have, the, the, again, a character beat of Juno walking in and doing her fucking leg stretch to be like, look what I can do. I love it. Because it shows you that Juno is athletic, that Holly is living to try to, like, she's aspiring to be like her, but that she's goofy, but also that she's she's like a lesser than Juno. Like, all of these moments, you could say, like, oh, this is just filler shit until we can get to the cave. It's not. These are super important character beats that are telling you who these women are and how they differ from one another. And it's even, and it's coming up, but, like, the scene when they have to cross the chasm and, you know, Becca does it. There actually is an extended deleted scene here. I mean, it's it's the same scene, but it's extended, where Juno pushes harder to cross the chasm and they do rock paper scissors because Juno has to be the one to do things to show off. Oh, and yeah. so when Becca is the one to do it, she's like kind of, it's like a peg it, taking her down a peg. Right. Yeah. I always thought that was an interesting piece because you would expect that Juno would go first, but then of course you realize, Oh no, it's so that she can go last and be the one who saves the rope. I will say that every deleted scene, and again, most of them are extended scenes, but every single one, I would be 100% okay with them being in the film. I, it would probably wow. push it to two hours instead of, uh, nah, 110, it's probably like 10 minutes of deleted scenes. I think they all work. Like, it, it's just more character beats. You know, it's not more creature stuff. It's more character beats. Right. I imagine that they probably cut it then just for pacing to try to keep things moving and, and getting to that action sooner. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they pause to take a beautiful commemorative photo, Ugh. which is so sad in hindsight. It's again, it, it's so silly. you don't think about the end credits of a film like leaving an impact, but that the film ends with that, it's it, it's it just like a punch in the gut, you know? Yeah, I mean, particularly if you're watching the UK cut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not not quite as much if you watch the US one, but yeah. Okay, so now we're on the road to Borum Caverns, or so we think. So they make this trek, they find a... Boredom Caverns. Hmm? Boredom Caverns, that's what Holly calls them. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, it's barely level two. <laughs> okay, Holly, take it down a fucking notch. <laughs> so uh, as they trek to the entrance, we get Becca helpfully foreshadowing a series of cave safety rules, which will all be broken, as well as human reactions, which will all be experienced. Yeah. <laughs> In some ways, you're like, okay, this is expeditious, but also like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we get it. We're going to get to see all this stuff. But it doesn't feel like it feels like all the other things in this movie. Very organic. Yeah, this movie feels so real. And it's it's interesting, like, you know, you have, like, slice-of-life movies that I feel like can drag sometimes, and there's nothing about this movie that drags to me. And it, I think it has to do with that I just like these characters. I like spending time with them before shit gets bad. Absolutely. So by the time they get to the cave entrance, you really have a sense of who each of them is. So Juno is the leader, and she has to be in charge. She has to go first. She's the kind of authoritarian. Beth is wise, but she's cautious. Holly is a fucking daredevil. 
Becca is the overprotective big sister to Sam, and then Sarah is damaged goods, but she's desperate to prove otherwise. So early on in the film, Sarah is the one who keeps like, oh, there's bats. Oh, what's that sound? Oh, I'm scared of the dark. Oh, I'm the one panicking. Yeah. And over time, you really see her evolution to the point where when they have to make that crossing, she basically is done with shit. And she is like badass Sarah from that point on. I also think, because here's the thing. So Sarah, we're seeing Sarah at a weaker point now than we've ever, than she's ever been in her life. I think that what we don't get to see a lot is that Juno's competition has always been Sarah. Oh yeah, and that's why she's fucking Paul. E- exactly. And that's why, so at the end of the film, like we get to see the real Sarah come out, you know, as she, of course, slowly descends into madness. Because again, everyone, that's what the title means. What? Oh. No, no, Trace, I think you're reading into it. It's because they go down underground, so it's the descent. They're, de- they're literally descending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's nothing deeper to it. Um, but, but, but that's what we don't get to see. And so now that, you know, and again, obviously it wasn't Juno's intention for fucking Paul to die, because obviously she wanted to get her clit rubbed. But like, we, <laughs> was that too crude? I don't know. <laughs> um, but How we dare you speak of Natalie Mendoza's clit. I but, love her. But oh God, if only Spider-Man turn off the dark could like, you know, ha- had she not been hurt, she could have been our good villain in that Broadway performance. I mean, you clearly did not watch her on Melrose Place, the reboot. I did. What? I did. I missed this, apparently. <laughs> she hasn't done a lot of acting since, though. Which is a shame, because I, like, so as I mentioned last week at the closing, I am a Juno apologist in this film. I want you to hold on to that, because when we get to the cheating reveal with Sarah, I would like to talk about that. Okay. Well, let's move on then, maybe. Yeah, that's fine. So we're going into the cave, and immediately things are amiss. So Sarah finds scratch marks on the rocks. She's hearing strange sounds in the dark. They break for lunch, and Juno kind of does an olive branch where she apologizes to Sarah for fucking off, and Sarah's mm-hmm. just like, I can't handle this right now. This is another extended scene, too, when Holly's like, what's wrong with her? And then, like, Beth steps in in the, in the extended scene and says, like, okay, well, since the accident, she's still been bad. <laughs> yeah, like, no shit, Holly. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't think we need that, because we do get that scene later where Holly's like, oh, what's her problem? And Beth's like, Holly fuck off yeah yeah exactly <laughs> because she loves her <laughs> uh so then they set off through this narrow passage and this is the point where sarah becomes stuck and she has a panic attack until beth rescues her and i think my favorite character beat and the piece of dialogue that just rings more authentic and more true than any other in this film it's where beth says what are you afraid of the worst thing that could have happened to you has already happened oh yeah Okay, so this fucking tunnel scene. <laughs> so the poxy cave scene. Yes. Um. So everyone says claustrophobia, claustrophobia, claustrophobia. Um. There is something called clethrophobia, where it's like you're not. It's not that you're afraid of small spaces. It is the fear of being trapped. It's often confused with claustrophobia, which is the fear of enclosed spaces. Um, clethrophobia is related to certain winter-related fears due to the potential risk of being trapped underneath a snowdrift or underneath thin ice. Yeah, okay. This is what it pertains more to me, because while small spaces, like, it's kind of terrifying, watching Sarah in this tunnel, she can't move her arms. Yeah. She is trapped. Her body is trapped and frozen in a position that she cannot do, and that makes your panic happen. That's what I have. I don't. I, I don't think I have. Like, it's to me it's like being buried alive. You know, like you're under in a coffin underground. You have limited range of movement, and it makes your panic come up. That's more clethrophobia to me than it is claustrophobia. Mm. And watching this scene, 
even in a big ass fucking theater auditorium, <laughs> is it, it is terrifying to me. Like this is the scariest part of the movie to me, and the monsters haven't even been introduced yet. Yeah, it is literally just okay. You need to stop panicking, and like even just if it, you've ever encountered someone who is having a panic attack, and you say, "Don't panic," you know, try not to try to collect your breath, try to calm down, and it's just like. If you're the person having that panic attack, that is the last fucking thing that you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Uh, and then she tells her some silly joke. How do you give a limit an orgasm? Do you know what the answer to that is? Because I have never been able to figure it out. I mean, she says the answer, doesn't she? No, I know, but I don't know what she says. I, I, I can never figure out. Because she says it when she's laughing. Oh, uh, shit. I had the subtitles on, so I definitely saw it. Oh, I guess I could have no, done that one. How do you give a limit an Okay, how do you give a lemon an orgasm? I don't know, how do you? <laughs> you tickle its citrus. There you go. So it's instead of its... Clitoris. Clitoris. See, I, I was smart by bringing up the clitoris earlier. There you go. <laughs> it all comes full circle. Uh, Alright, so yeah, now this is when the movie's... And this is like 35 minutes into the movie, which I think is pretty late for like an inciting incident of like horror. But here we go. Here we go. So they barely make it out of this poxy cave before it caves in. Sarah blacks out, and this is the first of many iterations where she will mm. once again see her daughter and that birthday cake. Birthday cake. No. <laughs> so when she wakes up, it is to the unhappy news that Juno has lied to them, and they are not in Boredom Cavern. <laughs> they are in a new undiscovered cave system, and nobody has a fucking clue on how to get out of here. It... I oh, I would have been so pissed. Like I am surprised that nobody punches Juno in the face. Yeah, but I I, I think storytelling wise, the reason they don't is so that the axe the pickaxe moment later like is more cathartic. Well, I think also it's a testament to the way that women would handle this, right? Like Becca right. is super fucking pissed off. Like, we, we're mostly following Sarah because at this point she's catching sight of a crawler and she's distracted, but she's front of camera, like front of frame. And we're hearing oh. Becca, but Becca is very clearly like, okay, well, this fucking sucks and I think you're an idiot, but we also have to press on because we are all rational human beings and in order to survive, we can't just stand here and get angry. I think this is more reflective of how I am as a person because, yeah, while it would be kind of satisfying to see someone punch Juno... Becca gets the line. No, it's Beth. You couldn't get away fast enough, you selfish cow. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> and it is, it's like a yeah moment. <laughs> Somebody fucking telling Juno off for a change. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Okay, we have now reached an impasse. There's a pit that requires someone to climb over it, and there's barely enough rope. So Becca goes, and at one point we see that she uses something called a python, which is basically a clasp that you would hook rope into for climbing. And it's already hooked in there, which cues us to let us know that someone has been down here before. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. yep, yep. So at this point, Sarah becomes more aggressive or assertive with Juno, because Juno's kind of like, don't worry, Sarah, it'll be okay, blah, blah, blah. And Sarah's like, it's fine, bye. And then she goes across leaving only Juno, and she's recovering the rope as she goes, which means that she's at a higher risk for falling. And we're downplaying the suspense of this scene. This scene is fucking good. It is really good. Watching Saskia Mulder, like, do this, it's... Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the, again, I like rock climbing. I like. I haven't done it in a long time, and I definitely don't have the upper body strength for it anymore. But just watching her and the noises she's making as she is just gripping to like rocks freely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's and trying to stretch her arm beyond what it can do. It, well, and like, again, the you know, it's a gripping her hand, which is about to get really fucked up. It's this is the horror like, again. Like if you're coming here, like oh, wasn't that scary? I don't know what movie you're watching because just this scene itself is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, this is more tense, and maybe that's the difference: is that I find the first half of the film tense, and then I find the creature stuff scary, like more conventionally scary. But the tense stuff is what gets me because it feels more true to life like you could imagine people in a cave system and they could have to do something like this and they're risking their lives i i get that adrenaline rush and it's terrifying whereas the creature stuff i'm like well i'm probably never going to encounter a crawler so it's good it's scary but it's fun it's funny that you say that because i have a friend from high school that i told to go see this movie after i saw it because i was like oh it's one of the best movies ever made and she (laughs) came back and she was like that was really stupid because she couldn't get over the fact that it was just these monsters in the caves and she did the same thing when i told her to go see the hills have eyes remake the same year where she was like oh that was stupid because it was these you know fucking radioactive mutants and i just accepted the fact that she'll never like these kinds of things so i know what to suggest that she watch (laughs) wow she sounds like she would be a ton of fun at parties if my sister were dead she would have been the equivalent of the best woman at my wedding and i do love her but yeah it's 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 definitely been a point of contention where i'm like i cannot believe you don't like these movies (laughs) dear yeah i uh i don't know that i know anyone who doesn't like this movie because this is a deal breaker movie for me like you need to tell me you like this or else i don't know if i can talk to you um yeah i'm i'm kind of in the same boat it's one of those where it's like if you don't like it i I can get maybe thinking it's okay but if you're like i flat out don't like this movie it's kind of one of those where i'm like okay i know your taste now and i don't really want to (laughs) like i just don't agree with you at all (laughs) yeah i mean i I, again there has to be a thing where it's okay yeah let's have a discussion about film blah 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 like respect people's opinions but at the end of the day it's like this is kind of one of those movies where i'm like if you don't appreciate this movie and what it does I kind of know who you are as a film fan based on this that particular opinion, and I don't want to hear any more of your opinions. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. <laughs> okay. So Juno, of course, falls because somebody's got to fall. Like the mm-hmm. whole point is somebody's got to fall. Uh, and Becca gets super bad rope burn. It's disgusting and it, great. It's an exa- It's a really quick flash. It, so from the rope burn, the actual act of it itself, to later when we see the blood like pouring out of her hands. Mm-hmm. Again, it's really quick, maybe at the max a second long shot. And it's just, it's horrifying to see. Yeah, that is a deep ass cut. Mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. not care for it. Uh, yeah, and then when Juno finally gets across, so after they pull her back up and everybody's kind of okay, Becca's going to be not great, but she'll survive. We get this confirmation that the people who would have put the piton there uh, would have been there for more than 100 years. So it's the start of the doom really kicks in here because you realize other people have been here and they didn't get out for whatever reason. This is when we get to this fucking cave drawing. Yes, I love a cave drawing. I do too. But Beth is like, light the flare. And they're like, well, we shouldn't waste the flare, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Did they need to light the flare? Like, couldn't they use their helmets to look at this entire cave drawing? <laughs> Maybe? 
I was yeah. really confused. If there is a one flaw in this movie, this is the one where I'm like, Beth, you really could have just used your helmet. Like, it's totally fine. You know what? Beth is a bit of a badass, and she likes to have a fucking moment. So she was like, light that flare for me, bitch. Light up this wall. <laughs> so yeah, so the cave drawing reveals that there is a second entrance conveniently on the other side of the mountain. All they had to do is get to it. I look at this, and the defeatist, cynical person in me just looks at it and says, are we even near the other side of the mountain? Like, how far do we have to go? We're just going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Not good. Uh, And actually, some of them feel the same way because they start to become increasingly frantic. And this is also where we start to see the editing pick up a lot more. So Holly thinks that she sees daylight and she just goes a-running, even though she should be smarter than this because what the fuck has Juno been teaching her? And she just falls down a hole and breaks her leg. It's really good filmmaking, though, because there's a shot where you do see what Holly is seeing like as she's running, and you're like, oh yeah, that looks like daylight. But of course, 100%. you're watching a movie and you're like, I'm only 40 minutes into this movie. Like, clearly, <laughs> it's not the end. <laughs> it's just 40 minutes of denouement as they're like drinking at the bar. That was a great trip. I can't believe that it all worked out for us. So this ranks for me in one of the best leg break scenes, at least the visual oh. of it. Like it's this, and I know you haven't seen it, but Adam Green's Frozen um, has also one of the best leg breaks, like bone protruding from the skin moments in horror history for me. And this is up there with everybody. But yeah, oh god, this this oh man, it's really hard to watch. I forgot how many attempts it takes them to get this bone back in because there's repeated scenes where Sam is trying to set this bone using a splint. But of course she has, sorry, she's setting the leg. She has to get the bone back in. And I remember her being like crack and it's back in, but it's like crack and Holly screaming and then her being like, push the bone in with her hand <laughs> yeah no it, it's it's well because the bone is like res- it's like her legs resisting it and it's you feel every moment of this and mm-hmm. like it's it's not gory like there is blood but it's such a convincing practical effect and just like y- you can you feel this oh, yeah. bone and again like it's one of those like, oh it's really convenient they have a fucking like med student in their ranks but you know what i don't give a fuck because it pays off well i think it also Really, it would make sense if the women are this prepared, they would have someone with some kind of medical expertise on the group. Yeah. Well, because, like, uh, yes. And it's the same thing with Becca, where Becca is the more technically, like, I'm going to say educated rock climber of the group. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. Juno is kind of the daredevil and she is experienced, but Becca's like the school teacher rock climber, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, she's going to make sure that everybody gets across and they do it quite right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Holly is back, but, like, she can't put any weight on that leg, and they have got to get her out of there. I also like the part where they're trying to set the splint, and it's like she's just under this dirty rock water. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's, again, a good moment where she's like, we have to get her out of the water. Like, I was like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you (laughs) You do, because that shit's going to get infected. Oh, wait, she's dead. Never mind. Also, the (laughs) the fact that, like, they're even, like, slightly thinking that she's going to make it out of there with them is, like, really... Oh, silly. I know. The, <laughs> the horror movie watcher in me was like, leave her, she's dead, wait. She is fucking dead. <laughs> or leave her and, like, look, come back later. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't worry, I'll be back. I'm just going for help, I swear. I'll come back. <laughs> okay, so she's back on her feet. This is the point where Sarah firmly catches a crawler in her light. But, of course, Juno is like, did you not just see what happened with Holly? You're imagining things. It's what the caves do. It's your brain playing tricks on you. And, of course, it's like, nobody believes her. But, right, so this is something that, like, normally this would annoy me because 
Dude, this, this is something that would take up, like, most of the second act of the film. Yeah, we'd have ten other versions of this, and people would be like, no, Sarah, you're just a dumb cow. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. But we get the actual reveal of the crawler to everybody four minutes later. Yeah, so they basically stumble into this feeding ground and just immediately get attacked. And from this point on, really, the rest of the film is an all-out adrenaline rush to the finish line. I agree, and here's the thing. So th- th- this reveal, the, the night vision reveal is at the 56-minute mark of the film. There is about 35, maybe 40 minutes left of this movie, and it feels so much longer than everything that came before it. But like in a good way, because it's just so fucking terrifying Mm -hmm. because you you just keep waiting for scenes to end because you don't want to be in them anymore (laughs) yes 100 percent. yeah so holly gets attacked and in this ensuing chaos everybody scatters so this is where we get split narratives for the next little while uh of course sarah goes down and smacks her head and blacks out because that's what sarah does in this movie she gets concussed yeah (laughs) which which is fine We get these great scenes where Holly gets her throat ripped out and uh, Juno has to fight with crawlers. It's very messy, but here's the thing. I saw some people talking about how this movie was too dark, like they couldn't see anything. And I was really confused because it is dark, obviously, Mm -hmm. intentionally, because it's in a cave. Yes. I could make out everything perfectly fine that was happening in these scenes. I mean, I, if I had have tried to watch this during the day without my blackout curtains, I probably would have had difficulty. But the minute it got dark outside, I was fine to see everything on the screen. Yeah, I guess. I mean, again, I'm thinking in a theater. Like, I see it fine. I did watch yeah. this at night last night. It's totally fine. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's, and granted, they did try to use most of the lighting from the flares, from yes. the helmets. Like, it, they didn't want to light it more than they needed to. But again, I kind of think that's the point. Like, I, I, oh, I like that. It feels very real. But I was never confused about what was happening and what i love about this particular scene because again this is the first scene that we really have an action scene mm-hmm. it's so messy like you have juno scrambling on the ground like, i love the part where she's like looking at holly and it just fucking tackles her yeah because there's two of them one is grabbing holly and then another one grabs juno from behind mm-hmm. and it's messy i love the part where juno and the crawler are kind of like pulling on holly it feels almost oh, childish yeah. and you're just like this is Oh god, this is so messy and bad and gross and it's going to end so badly. And Holly has a Holly has a death gurgle when he rips her throat out and she's and you hear like the gurgling of her blood as she screams her last breath. It's yeah. it's chilling. And again, I don't really like she's my least favorite character in this movie, but it's still kind of like, oh. <laughs> yeah, like I I don't like her because she's brash and impulsive and kind of stupid. Like she just feels younger, even though I get the impression that she and Sam are right. probably about the same age. But you're just like, yeah, we've all known a Holly and you're kind of like, oh, my God, Holly, go to the corner. You need to time out. Yeah. But like, I don't want this for her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. In a horror movie, especially a slasher, you're like, oh, let's look at the cool deaths. I don't enjoy any no. of these deaths. Like, I mean, from a gore standpoint, they are really cool looking. Yes. But, like, I care even about Holly to the point where I'm like, oh, she didn't deserve that. No. And and this death is so gnarly that you're just like, oh, even if I had wanted her to die, I don't want her to go like this. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. I would have been, it, it, it would have been better, quote unquote, if she had died in the fall. Yeah, or even if she had just died in that first attack, like when it rips at her neck. And, you know, in other movies, it would have been like, spurt, spurt, she's dead. And here mm-hmm. it's like, she's still alive. And you get that close up away. when Juno puts the light in her eye and then her iris just like gets, you know, smaller. 
Yeah. Well, that's to confirm that, oh, no, she's not dead. Don't worry. She's still suffering through all yeah, of this. Exactly. Yeah. So Juno manages to kill her crawler, and then you hear something behind her, and she whips around with the ice pick and gets Beth right in the neck. Um, the, this... And it's like, bang, bang. It's so it's so funny because I think like maybe in the split second when she turns, you kind of realize, oh, that's not going to be a monster. But like it's done so because it, it, the, it, the camera does it as a POV shot, which they actually never do for any of the crawlers in this movie. You know, it's a mm-hmm. typical thing. You know, like watching Halloween, you're see, the camera's the POV. It's Michael Myers. They don't do it for this. And so this is the first time that they do that. And so you think in your mind, oh, this is a horror trope. You're seeing the camera is the POV of the villain. Right. And it's not. And it is fucking, it's bad. And it's a great effect, first of all, where you just see the axe, the, the pickaxe coming out of her neck. Yeah. And it's like your your heart just like drops out of your ass. Yep, yep. And Juno, of course, is, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that I love Juno. And I also recognize why people hate her so much is because of this scene, right? Well, actually, so, no. Let's go. Talk about this. Why do you like her so much? So Juno, to me, is reflective of the kind of character that we should implicitly hate because she's an adulteress, because she is so narcissistic and selfish, and then she accidentally kills one of her friends. Like, she should be the most hissable, hateable character in this movie. And you might argue that she is, of all the human beings, but I find something so human about her and particularly in this moment where she realizes what she's done and she is crying she is so upset and she doesn't know what to do i think part of her also realizes this is a death blow i can't do anything for beth and she's embarrassed like that's why i think she leaves beth it's not because she looks at her and says well i can't do anything to help you you're dead weight she literally doesn't say anything to her even Mm -hmm. as beth is saying please don't leave me Juno just can't handle the ramifications of what she's done. And to me, that makes her the most human character. I think I was interested to hear this from you because you've been upfront on the podcast before about your experiences with cheating and your opinion on cheaters or the other woman or the other man. And so mm-hmm. I, I was interested to see like, what, what about this character resonated with you? You know, I mean, it's, it's also because she is just such a badass character. Like, I think when people talk about The Descent, they often prioritize Sarah and her evolution either to, like, this badass final girl or back to becoming what she once was before the grief kicked in. And I think people dismiss Juno because she's the human antagonist. I think that does the character a disservice because in any other horror film, Juno would be the fucking final girl. She is the Gale Weathers of The Descent, where she is hissable and narcissistic and selfish and self-involved, and she makes a lot of bad, stupid decisions, but she's also fucking badass. Yeah, but it's also her fault that they're in this... It's her fault that they're here. (laughs) It 100% is. But I think it's interesting that the film doesn't make her apologize for that. We know that she's wrong. She knows that she's wrong. Everybody else fucking knows that she's wrong. But the film doesn't care to give you simplistic, like, she doesn't ever say, oh, I'm really sorry I did this, guys. I really wish we hadn't come here, which is what you would see in a super tropey thing. Or she would be like, Sarah, you know, I, I didn't mean to fuck your husband, and I just really hope we can patch things up when we get out of here. It's like, the film doesn't have time or interest in doing that, because these are complicated characters who also just have to survive the fucking day. Right. 
And I just, I like that. Like it's, to me, it's part of what makes these characters so rich and interesting. And and we we don't even get, we don't get a confrontation where Sarah's like, you fucked my husband. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. No, it's all looks. It's all eye acting. (laughs) And also, I, I, I won't mention the sequel again, but the thing in the sequel is like, we know from the, from basic things people are saying, these creatures hunt by sound. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, there are moments where yes, like people scream in this movie, like especially, um, especially Becca, like right, right well, when Sam dies. Yeah. But in the sequel, all people are doing, even after knowing this is what they do, all they are doing is screaming the entire time. <laughs> See, like everything that we're talking about praising in this original film, it sounds like they have watered and dumbed down for Which, the sequel. Like they've made it more conventional and therefore far less interesting. The funny thing is, too, so the director of the sequel is the editor of this movie. Um, director Neil Marshall is an executive producer, and I had someone reach out and they're like, oh, that's probably just like a, like a you know, a congratulatory title. And I was like, no, 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 because he apparently had script approval on this movie. So weird. And like, and he did an interview with Dread Central where they were like, oh, are you going to follow up the American or the UK ending? And his response was, oh, well, we're not saying because we haven't approved a script yet. But once I approve, like, I, once I approve the script, that's where it's going to, like, that's when we'll tell you. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is the script you approve, you idiot? Okay. I'm sorry. Neil Marshall, you're an idiot. But, like, that, <laughs> that was not a good decision. It was a bad decision, yeah. I wonder if this was one of those things where he was busy prepping Doomsday or in the middle of filming and he was kind of like, yeah, sure, I'll sign on for this above credit title role where I can make a bunch of money, but I'm really not just going to like pay attention to it. I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you really angry. So the, the Descent 2 turns the franchise into wrong turn because basically when the final girl gets out of the cave and in, in the end of the Descent Part 2... There's a hermit earlier in the film that, like, has a fucking mine elevator that they use. She is, like, about to call for help when she gets out. And then all of a sudden she turns and the hermit's there and he, like, hits her over the head with a shovel. And he drags her to the hole where the cave is. Because he's apparently, like, helping, like, been feeding the creatures this whole time. And that's how the movie ends. You know what? Honestly, I care not to address that right now. We will touch upon that when we talk about Cabin in the Woods as our audio commentary on Patreon later this month, because I think that's the only smart way to do it is if you're mocking that fucking dumb trope. That's a really nice transition. I I work on these things, man. Of course. No, I don't. Okay. So uh, we do have other characters who are still alive in this film, and they are divided by color. So whatever light color they have is how we distinguish who we're following, and also it distinguishes the separate types of cavern or rooms that they're in. It's kind of giallo-y, right? It's a little bit, yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way. When I think of giallo, I think of red, green, and blue. Maybe yellow. But like, it's just, it's red and green in this movie. And I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the smarter ways to play it. We've seen a bunch of different types of films where they say, oh, we're going to use naturalistic lighting that the characters would actually have. And it's usually a stylistic choice. And here it is too. But it also feels very practical, right? Like, Mm. I mean, it sounds like one of your big issues with the sequel, and I promise we'll stop bringing it up, folks. I know. Is just that they, they do away with the smartness of the production design. So, like, you don't need to overlight these caverns because the light that we're getting from things like an infrared camcorder, from a flare, from a headlamp, like, it's not just creating atmosphere and tension. It's also cueing you to who we're following. Like, it's just, it's really smart filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. 
So we've got Sarah with the infrared camcorder, and she gets to watch Holly get eaten. Yum. Um, I love the moment where she, like, gags, and, like, that's, like, because you're seeing it through the camcorder, and the creatures, like, hear that, and they look up, and it's, mm-hmm. just, you know, it's kind of a tropey thing, but I still like it, where it's, like, yeah. it's, like, right in her face, and she just can't make a sound. Yeah, I think one of the more common criticisms that I've seen from people is that if they... If they didn't have vision, then their other senses would be heightened, which hypothetically means that he should have been able to smell, smell her. her. And you're like, okay, let's not. Let's just yeah. not do that, shall we? I get that. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So Juno was running around yelling her damn fool head off, but uh, she's also finding arrows on the wall that may lead to a path out. Becca and Sam eventually get saved by Juno. They try to hide up on a tall piece and they... The watch scene is really good, though. <laughs> the watch scene. Because, of course, it's been queued up earlier that Sam has this dumb... It's like a children's watch with an alarm that goes off at inconvenient times. It is a fucking Burger King or McDonald's toy watch. Mm-hmm. So this fucking thing goes off, and, of course, it's after a crawler has already gone by, and then it comes back, and... I do love that moment where it touches it with its face and then it goes off and it gets scared. Because you're yeah. just like, oh, these things have a simplicity that's equivalent to dogs. Yeah, or, like or they're a not T-Rex. smart. They're just hunters. So they ultimately almost get killed, but they get saved by Juno, who has gone into full Linda Hamilton territory at this point. Love it. I also love the dialogue in this part. So Becca and Sam go, you know, what about the others? And Juno says, Holly's dead. And then they say, what about Beth? And Juno just goes, she didn't make it. Wait, okay, does that happen with them too? Because it definitely happens with Sarah. So she does this twice. Mm hmm. Oh, God. But she doesn't say that, like, they got her or whatever. So, like, again, it's Juno knowing that she is responsible for best death, but she can't process it. But she also doesn't lie. It's not like she says, oh, they got her. You know, the crawlers got her. She's dead. It's like, she's just dead. Definitely wasn't me. (laughs) I definitely did not kill her. Hey, guys. (laughs) Exactly. Why are you looking at me that way? I didn't kill her. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. So Sarah, meanwhile, has come across Beth. And Beth is tragically still alive. This movie brings the pain. Like, Holly didn't die immediately. Beth does not die immediately. So Sarah finds Beth and she is still alive. And they are able to have a brief conversation about Juno and the affair is revealed at this point. So Beth definitely knew, and she fills in Sarah to say, like, don't trust Juno because she did this to me, and also she fucked your husband. Well, what's the what's the, the inscription on the necklace? It's like, live every day or something? Uh, oh, no. It's some yeah. one Live, <laughs> laugh, love, cave dive. <laughs> but that was the clue, too, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. She Juno has a necklace that has the inscription of something that Paul always said. No, I think the implication is that Paul fucking gave her that necklace. I've seen this movie like 25 times, dude. I didn't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but uh, Beth had managed to grab it when she got the pickaxe through the neck. So uh, she gives it to Sarah. And then she asks her best friend slash love interest to mercy kill her. But there's that line where she's like, she did this to me. As like... As, like, the blood is gurgling out of her throat. It's Woof. it's a really, really difficult scene to watch. Um, I also, and maybe you differ, have a different opinion, the manner in which Sarah has to kill her. I do not agree with this. No. This would not I don't, have been my it preference. Is, I, well, here, here's my thing. If I was Sarah, 
I would be really, really afraid that the killing blow wouldn't actually kill her. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I would be afraid that my arms would have, like, given out at the last minute and, like, not had enough force to actually crush her skull. Yeah, um, like, we don't want a midsummer situation here. You want to kill with the first blow. <laughs> yes. And honestly, to me, th- this is the moment where I think that Sarah, I mean, obviously the whole thing is kind of, okay, she's going mad, blah, blah, blah. This, to me, is the moment that would have driven me insane because I can't even oh, yeah. fathom having to do this to one of my best friends or or yeah. husband. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe not a best friend, but, you know, yeah, certainly not a husband. It's, yeah, it's, this is a really upsetting scene and it feeds perfectly to everything that Sarah does after this. Because after this, this is like, Sarah's like, fuck it. Like, I am, I'm Linda Hamilton, bitch. Yeah. Fuck you, Juno. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, who's going to become the biggest badass killer of the two? Because in about the span of three minutes, Sarah kills three different crawlers, mm-hmm. including a female crawler, just to cue you that, yes, they can procreate and they do have a kind of ecosystem and stuff. The reasoning for that, though, was because they were like, if they all looked like men, it wouldn't make any sense. Because they can't reproduce. Yeah, because they would just die out. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we also get this fantastic moment where she tries to run away from the female and she basically goes headfirst into this lake of blood. This Oh my god, this is possibly my favorite sequence in the film. Um, We don't know what this water is, although in the second one we learn it's their poop hole. It is gross, it is, the flare has, because I think people always thought she was in a river, like a pool of blood, and that's not what it is, it is water. But it's got excrement and like stuff floating on the surface, and when she comes out of it, there's clearly blood on the surface of it because right, her face exactly. is coated. But we get this awesome shot as she crawls out and it's, it, again, because you we haven't seen the crawler get in the water yet and so we don't know it's in there and as she crawls out, it, it, like, it, it's framed expertly by Marshall as it like gets out and attacks her. <laughs> she kills it with what looks like an antler chew toy for dogs. <laughs> and then its husband comes in and the shot when it's a close up on her head as it steps on her head or like puts its hand on her head yeah is one of the most suspenseful scenes in any horror film i've ever seen yeah so she has basically played dead and it is standing with its foot on her and the camera is framed so that it's kind of like a medium long shot so that we can get a really clear sense of not just the cave the water where she is and but also like a really good clear glimpse of this thing just kind of standing there sniffing looking around it Mm -hmm. walks away comes back at this point sarah is now out of the water and she knows that she's gonna have to kill this thing so she does and then she takes its position like it's badass i'm a fucking superhero pose and then she just screams so this pose is the cover of the dvd for the sequel (laughs) (laughs) i love how much i can hate the sequel sight unseen (laughs) i've basically been warned by everybody they're like you love the first one a little too much to watch the sequel because you would hate it." honestly for me it's kind of one of those like fan fiction things where it's like okay this isn't a real movie like i'm just watching this to be like a what if scenario and so i can I, i watch it for that but like yeah it's it's terrible uh so while Sarah is screaming her head off and being a badass bitch, Becca, Sam, and Juno decide that they're going to make a run for it because they think that Sarah is dead or like the scream means that she has been killed. So Sam freaks the fuck out and she makes a run for it. She gets to another crevice and she decides, I'm just going to tackle this. Wait, wait, wait. So she- a chasm. Chasm. 
crevasse. <laughs> I, I imagine a crevasse Stalax- looking more like, like it, it, it's tighter, you know, like it's not like a big fucking cliff. I'm sorry. Did you know. say tight clit there? Did you say tight? Clit? <laughs> Rude, Someone sir. described this movie as um, it's it's so it's slick and tight. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, Tim O'Leary from our uh, from our cursed episode. He described the film as slick and tight. And I was like, girl, <laughs> mm, title of your sex tape. <laughs> Um, yeah, th- this scene is honestly really upsetting for me because it- it's just Sam trying to prove to her sister that she can do the same thing that she did. Like, I don't even think she's thinking, though. I think she like she is in full flight or fight no, no, no. mode. But that's and what she is it's, it, it doesn't come across arrogant like Juno does. Juno comes across like, oh, I'm proving this to you. I'm also a fucking tough bitch. Whereas right. Sam is like, oh, like I- my sister showed me how to do this. I can do this. You know, like th- that's it-, it. It's more... I don't want to say childlike, but it's more innocent. It is. I mean, everything Sam does feels like it's the baby sister version. And she goes out fucking fighting. And I love that about this character. Yeah, because in other movies, again, this character, the way that she's been presented, she just would have gotten her throat ripped out and she would just die. And it would be sad and terrible. And instead, she's got a knife and she grabs onto this crawler who is scuttling across the ceiling in nightmare fuel territory and she's like stabbing this motherfucker and then it falls and then she dies what i love too and i think they do this in becca scene too when she's crawling across the chasm earlier but um the camera's under her spinning around to kind of increase that sense of like vertigo and paranoia mm-hmm. because you're like oh shit like you're disoriented watching though after she kills the crawler and her body just like flops yeah oh it's so upsetting so Sam is now dead. It's very sad. Becca is losing her shit. And she, like, you barely get a moment to register that grief. And then she just gets dragged away and her guts get ripped out. It. It. <laughs> it, I, it like, we're laughing because it's just, like, it's so terrible. It's also so fast, right? Like, you're not yeah. expecting this to happen immediately. Because, I mean, she's just watched her sister get killed. Um, and this is also an extended deleted scene where she's like, I can't go on, I'm done, I'm done. And Gino has to be like, no, get up. And of course, then that's when she gets pulled under by the crawler. Mm, I don't like that as much. I, I actually, it plays kind of well. But again, you can okay. watch it and see. It, yeah, it, it doesn't just like, I had a memory of this crawling, uh, uh, clawing her stomach out. It buries its face in her stomach. Yeah. And just goes to town. Yep. It doesn't have the same impact for me as Sam's death because Sam had like yeah, there was just there was more time spent on it. Mm-hmm. But it's still like, oh fuck, man. Like we got we lose her too. <laughs> like yeah. I just really like these two characters so much. <laughs> yeah, which is shocking because really it's these two and Holly that we know the least about. Like when I think back on this film, I always think of the Beth Sarah Juno triad. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make it less impactful when these other characters die. And I think it's such a testament to what you can do, even if you're not giving a shit ton of screen time to your supporting cast. Like, if I don't care when they die, you have not done a good job. As we've said, all of these women make an impact. I I agree. I I 100% agree. Would that all horror films do this? Right. (laughs) Would that it had been mere heroin? So we are down to two. So Sarah and Juno get reunited and they almost immediately hit an impasse. And we get this beautifully staged tableau where it feels like you can see the exit, but they have to get past these three crawlers who are just like American gladiator guarding the exit. There's also, I don't know if this is intentional, but the sco- there isn't a bunch of score in this movie, but it, it the in these moments, it reminds me of the thing because it's kind of the bum bum. Yeah. 
bum bum. And I was like, I wonder if that was an intentional thing, but I don't know. Let us know, listeners. Maybe. Marshall really seems to be paying homage to a bunch of things that he finds really valuable. And I do know that the thing is one of the things the thing is one of the things that he references when he talks about this movie. It's an homage. Again, there's so many homage in this movie, but it's not like it's like... It's not pausing to say, hey, I'm doing a homage to that thing you like. Exactly. Exactly. Like, it's like you can see the influence, but it's not like ripping it off, if that makes any sense. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I could walk you through all the details, but what you need to know is that Sarah and Juno just fucking go to town on these things. And it is so exciting and so impressive and just like everything that I want badass female characters to do. But again, it's not perfect. Like it is scrappy. We've got fingers going into eyes. We've got, you know, Juno sticking a torch in one of these things faces. Like it is a full on, like just a rush of adrenaline to get through it. It's a cathartic experience. Honestly, that's what it is. It is these two women just going to town in these fucking crawlers. Uh, yeah, I, I got the great the eye gouging, which goes on forever, I feel like. Um, oh, the head that. cracking against a rock. Um, mm-hmm. The pickaxe goes at a skull. And it, it's just blood spraying. And again, these are all close-ups. Like... It's close-ups where I'm like, okay, I feel like normally this, these, this would have been, like, this shot of this blood spray would have been removed to get it an R rating, you know? It's like mm-hmm. the Evil Dead remake. Um... But then, and what's funny is my, my favorite part of this entire scene is not just them killing any of them, but at, to, to conclude this montage of crawler killing, <laughs> Sarah spits on one. Yeah. <laughs> like they are just done with this shit, and these things are just dead meat. Ah, it's so good. It's, it's such really a good. great fucking moment. Yep. And of course, it ends with this face-off between the two women. And really... This is what the movie has been building to. It's not about these creatures. It's about these two women finally coming to grips with their shared grief. And we should mention earlier that there's a moment where Beth and Juno share a, a like a, not a tete-a-tete, no, but they have this quick aside and Juno says, we all lost something in that crash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this really feels like the payoff is where Sarah now knows the truth about everything Juno knows that Sarah knows the truth. And it's like, are they going to forgive and forget? Are they going to hash it out? No words. Sarah looks at the exit. She takes that fucking pick. She buries it in Juno's. She drops, she drops the necklace first. So that, so that that that, that way Juno will know. (laughs) Just like, bitch, I know your dirty little secret. Um, yeah. And then she, yeah. Now, Hey, this is the one effect in the movie that I think looks like shit. And, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is it is the I'm assuming a green screen effect of Juno facing off against all the crawlers, but it oh, looks okay. like her in front of a green screen. Yeah, I mean there's another moment. They they did matte paintings for some of these bigger kind of cavernous scenes. There's another one where I think it's just before the lunch where Sarah is standing in the foreground and the other girls are kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. And that also looks a little bit painting staged. But um I see. I mean, the most the, funny is though, quibbles, I, I, right? I can take a matte painting over the green screen effect. Sure. I mean, yeah. God, yes. Like, give me models and mats, not yeah, not green screen. Mm-hmm. So Sarah leaves her. She doesn't kill her, but she no. doesn't help her. She just leaves, and she leaves her to die. I mean, again, she leaves. Like, her the to sequel die. doesn't exist. She dies. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. So Sarah thinks that she sees this light and she runs to it. And it's almost like, hey, do you remember what happened to Holly? Because we're about to do it again. And she falls down a shaft. (laughs) She smacks her head a bunch of times. And then she opens her eyes and she is in front of a mountain of bones. And she just crawls her way up frantically. And this shot of her going up this mountain of skulls and bones is gorgeous with this light at the top. We haven't talked a lot about the cinematography in this film, but um, it's it, the two shots that stand out to me the most. It's um, it's this shot, and it's when they first descend the cave on the rope, where it's just like the mm-hmm. long shot of them with like the the the, the, the hole of light coming down, mm-hmm. like, and it's a really good mirroring actually from the beginning and the end of the cave. Yeah, of course, because this movie's super fucking smart about that. <laughs> So she finally uh, follows that shaft of light. She breaks through. It's a literal moment of rebirth as she comes out of the ground and she is covered in blood and viscera and she screams. And then she, uh, Sally Hardesty's her way to the car. She tears back to the highway. She pulls off to the side of the road so that she can have a cathartic cry. And then we get this jump scare from Juno. And then the movie ends. In America. Once again. (laughs) Yeah, so if you were watching the American version, that's where it ends. And if you're watching the British cut, then this is the moment where Sarah awakens in the cave. So she has fallen down this hole. There is no mountain of skulls. There is no literal rebirth. There is no car. She has not made it out of these cliffs. I do love the transition of the birthday candles to the torch. Actually, in that 40-minute documentary, you can literally watch them shoot that scene where they've got the daughter and then they've got some, like, I'm assuming it's a PA or somebody else just goes in, grabs the girl, somebody pulls out the cake and puts in the torch and, like, the camera is just, it's all a single take. I'm imagining just someone grabbing this girl, like, all right, out of the shop, bitch! Yeah. (laughs) You did great. Get the fuck out of here. Go to craft services. We got a cookie. Yeah. Yeah, so Sarah is basically just sitting there staring at what she thinks is her daughter and the birthday cake. And it's actually just her torch in the light. And the camera pulls back and pulls back and pulls back as we hear the crawlers approaching. And we fade to the black and white group shot that they took at the beginning of the day. And it's kind of a great moment too, right? Because it's like, oh, remember all those characters you loved and they all died? Um, Here they are. It's like, this is... This is back when they were happy and everything was okay. And that was the last time. Oh, I love this movie, man. It's, uh, I, I've watched it so many times mm-hmm. that even watching it last night, I was like, I don't need to rewatch this for this episode, but like, I'm going to, because I, I don't think I've watched it in a couple of years, probably just because I had seen it so much, like in like the five or six years after it came out. Right. It's a perfect film. I think it's terrifying. It is so effective. It is shot and directed and written and acted so well. Mm-hmm. I hate that Neil Marshall hasn't been able to match this or at least come close to matching it. And it's it's kind of genuinely shocking when you think about the fact that he didn't really want to do this. And then he took it on a whim. And mm-hmm. you're just like, how do you achieve this level of perfection? I mean, when you watch the behind the scenes stuff... It's clear that they had such a comprehensive vision, like everything was lining up perfectly to make this film come together. Like the actresses are the right actresses. The production crew spent so much time getting these K's right. They talked about the lighting scheme, like they just got the vision of this film down and then they produced a masterpiece. I think it's also kind of upsetting that a lot of these actresses haven't done much since then. The, I the know. Most, if we had to say who was the most successful, it would be the one that plays Sam because she was in The Witcher that came out on Netflix last year. And she's fine in it. She's okay. But uh, Holly and Sam, they are both in Doomsday. 
Oh, are they? Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're smaller parts because neither one of them is Rona Mitra, but <laughs> they're in it. <laughs> is anyone Rona Mitra? No. <laughs> you want to talk to someone who I miss? I miss Rona Mitra. Okay. I mean, this is the side conversation for much, much later, yeah. <laughs> but I get the impression that she is probably a huge bitch in real life. Like, doesn't I... she just give you that, like, oh, she's hard to work with vibe? Maybe. I'm going to choose. I mean, you know, maybe if Paul Verhoeven wouldn't have just had her as a rape victim in Hollow Man, maybe she would have had a better career. Who knows? Jesus Christ. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I I love her whenever she shows up. I'm like, yes. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, one day if we ever decide to wade back into television, I know we've talked about doing Hannibal and Scream Queens and all this mm-hmm. stuff, but I really want to do the season with Famka and her of Niptuck. Oh. Well, okay, but here's the thing. Famka is in season two. She's Rona Mitra's in season three. Correct, and yes. <laughs> it's just one season. No, um, I'm saying we're doing the seasons, bitch. Uh, I wanna do okay. the seasons. That show was a garbage fest, but I want to. One of them's really it. good, one of them's really bad. Yes, correct. Uh yeah. Rona Mitra was actually on Supergirl for a couple episodes last season, so she was there. Okay. Um anyway, okay, well, final thoughts on the descent. Uh, I'm the same as you. I think this film is a masterpiece. I really wish that Neil Marshall could find a way to equal it. I love these women. And I love the fact that I care more about their relationships than I care about the creatures. Yes. I I won't elaborate too much on what you said, but yeah, you're right. The creatures are the background of this film. They Mm -hmm. are not the focus. It is a movie about characters and grief and trauma and betrayal that happens to have creatures in it. Yeah. But I also don't think that this film works if we don't have an all-female cast. Oh, Like, I'm picturing this with, like, a mixed gender, and I don't think it works the same way. Um, And that's what the second one does. Also, you know who's one of the male leads in the second one is fucking Josh Dallas, a.k.a. the prince from Once Upon a Time. Yeah, okay. Mm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, uh, this movie's perfect. Second one sucks. Don't watch it. Simple. Easy peasy. But, um, okay, well, um, that will conclude that. So before we announce what we're covering next week, um, if you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can like our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Facebook group. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram uh, or Twitter, whatever, at Horror Queers, or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. We've actually, we're almost at 300. I mean, we're at 272 as of this recording. So, you know, we could, at least in the States, um, if you could push that up, we'd love that. Do it. Do it. <laughs> you can buy Horror Queers merch at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E-Public.com. And if you want even more Horror Queers content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. This month, we've got two audio commentaries, one on Deep Blue Sea to pair with our full-length episode on Deep Blue Sea 3, which we have heard, we haven't watched as of this recording, but we have heard it's actually a ton of fun, unlike the absolutely atrocious Deep Blue Sea 2, um, and I'll never say those words again. Sure. Um, and uh, we're also going to have another commentary on Drew Goddard's Cabin in the Woods, to pair with our other full-length episode on Jay Baruchel's second directorial effort, Random Acts of Violence, which also stars Jordana Brewster, and The Cabin in the Woods is Jesse Williams. Okay, I was like, where are you going with this? I don't think The Cabin in the Woods is commentating on something like Random Acts of Violence. No, but it's a shared actor, Joe. We've discussed this. I mean, I would have said, hey, Cabin in the Woods fits our theme of vacation months, which is also... Where we're going next week, Trace. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah, Joe, what, what are what are we discussing next week? And I want to point out, we're trying to integrate some more pre-1990 films into our programming, and um, 
Well, y'all are welcome <laughs> for this next week. Yeah, so, you know, this this trip to the Apple Atchas didn't work out very well for us, so I'm feeling like we should take a trip to Greece. Mamma mia! <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck you. <laughs> no, we're going to travel back to 1976, and we're going to check out Island of Death. <sighs> um. Okay. Everyone, this is available to stream on Amazon Prime. I think it's actually free with Prime. I did buy the Blu-ray, but we both want to offer major content warnings for this yeah. movie. Um, it is, it's a video nasty. It's one, it's one of the most banned films of all time, but it does have a gay couple in it that, um, I, from what I've been told, has been brutally, gets brutally murdered. There is rape. There is bestiality rape. There is really graphic violence. I don't know. I, I don't know what else to say. Like, I mean, I, I'm... I don't know what to expect from this film. I'm intrigued by it, but um, I don't expect it to be a pleasant watch. So if you are wary of any of the things I just mentioned, you can yeah. skip out on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we will discuss it. We will unpack it. We will probably make fun of it. But, you know, you do you. Check your mental health. If you feel like a film whose tagline is the lucky ones got their brains blown out, Maybe this just isn't the right time for you. But as usual, we will go through a full plot summary. So if you just want to hear about it and hear us talk about it, um, because again, this is the first time watch for both of us. We don't know what to expect. From, by all accounts, it is actually not a good movie, but it was apparently good enough to have Arrow do a full Blu-ray release for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> you come listen to us anyway next week. Exactly. So that's where we're headed. Island of Death. Yay. And on that note, <laughs> we can cross out the descent. Yes, and cross out horror queers. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.